0: White Evangelicalism, Boys in the Hood, Rodney King Uprisings. Today on The Pursuit, Lisa Sharon Harper. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is a speaker and writer and founder and president of Freedom Road, a consulting group that designs experiences that helps groups do justice in just ways. Her activism has helped lead churches from Ferguson and Charlottesville, all the way to South Africa, Brazil, Australia, and Ireland. You may have read her book, The Very Good Gospel, or seen her writing, on the Huffington Post, or Sojourners, or Relevant, or Essence Magazine. But today, you get to hear from her on The Pursuit. You've spent some time in New York, and in Philly, uh, in New Jersey, and now in DC. If you had to pick one of those cities, where where would you pick?
1: You missed Los Angeles.
0: <laughs> oh, well, there you go.
1: Yeah, I was there for 14 years, actually. Um, okay. And I have to say, wow. I literally love all of them for different reasons. Yeah. And I think probably the question of where would I go would have less to do with the city and more to do with the call of God at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at this moment, I'm in DC Yeah, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting a sense that I might be being called to move to to Philadelphia at some point. Um, Oh, wow. And then right now I'm in the midst of writing my next book, um, Mm -hmm. which is based on my family story. And it got me thinking a lot about my grandmother's house and her old neighborhood. And oh, I have just been really feeling drawn to that, that community. Wow. Yeah. So that's Philly, South Philly, no less.
0: But you were born in New York city, right?
1: Uh-huh. I lived in New York for one year for the, for the first year of my life. And then we moved down to Philadelphia to be with my mom. My mom wanted to be closer to her mother while she was raising me and then my sister. Yeah. And, um, but then I moved back to New York for another year right after college. Okay. And then moved to LA, was there for 14, and then came back to New York and was in New York for another six years. Um, so, eight years total, I guess, in my entire life.
0: But you pretty much grew up in Philly?
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up for the first 10 years of my life in Philadelphia. Okay. And then I turned 11 down in Cape May, New Jersey. So, New Jersey. Yeah, Um, South Jersey, no less like the very South Jersey.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, And and Kate May and it was an amazingly awesome experience with my friends, but also a really, really hard experience of assimilation and trying to assimilate and not being able to do it as a person of African descent. Um, in a community that was almost 100% white. We were the only black family in a 15 mile radius.
0: Wow. <laughs> literally. I imagine very different than what your experience was in Philly.
1: Oh my God. Well, at the time, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but at the time, Philadelphia was a 60% black city. Mm. So so I literally knew one and a half white people <laughs> in Philadelphia and all three of them were half white and half Asian. They were actually all from one family. Oh. <laughs> the same family. Yeah. 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 But no, like we, I moved from that context where everybody I knew was black.
0: Yeah. At 11 years old.
1: Yeah. And all the way through high school and then went to college, went to Rutgers. Nice. So through college. So till I was 21 years Mm -hmm. old, I lived in New, in New Jersey from about, from 11 to 21. So for about a decade. And it was definitely life-shaping because that was my junior high and high school and college years, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so the, The challenge of assimilation for you in your teenage years, how did you navigate that?
1: Well, This is a funny story, actually. I mean, look, when I was in junior high, that was right around the same time that like um, ACDC was really big and Rush. Yeah. It was metal, right? Heavy metal. Uh-huh. And back down in that area where you can imagine where we were the only black family in a 15 mile radius, they were huge. Yeah. <laughs> so if I was going to have friends, I was going to have to figure out a way to like AC/DC, right? And Rush and all. And I have to say, I really do. I still love Rush Tom Sawyer to this day. Like it's like it's <laughs> One of my favorite songs ever made was Rush Tom Sawyer. I love it. But, um, but yeah, so I, you know, the tight jeans and the black eyeliner and Mm -hmm. then I straightened my hair and, you know, cut bangs. They didn't even have the word bangs in like we never, (laughs) I never even heard that word until I moved down literally to to Cape May, New Jersey. So my, you know, my I cut bangs and of course they always stuck straight out because they didn't lay down like all the other girls. And so I just did my best to try to blend in and assimilate and of course Mm. I did it. My very first day of class, I'm sitting there and this group of boys across the room they start kind of heckling at me. And I'm like, what are they talking about? And, you know, they were basically joking with one of the guys saying, he wants to date you. But of course, he didn't want to date me. Right. Like that's that's what they were doing. They're basically saying, you're black, you don't belong here, right? Yeah. So that was my experience off and on throughout my time there. Not with everybody and not all the time. I mean, I actually had really good friends, but then I became an evangelical Christian and like all my other friends kind of floated away and I was kind of surrounded by this evangelical Christian. Christian. Christian community that became my friends, Uh except for theater. Theater was the, was the, and other like school clubs, but that was the place where I really thrived. I was a theater person and most of my Christian friends weren't in the theater at all, but I was, and I, I loved it. I was, I was a proud theater person (laughs) (laughs) at Lower Cape May Regional High School.
0: So you're doing theater in high school. You like, you were talking about this journey of assimilation. And so as you're doing theater, you found your people.
1: When you look at theater, one of the things that I loved about it is that it's a community that is like sports actually you're all out to you're all out to win yeah and a win in theater is a really good show a standing ovation right so you want that standing ovation which means you all have to work together right and it also means that you respect the roles that people have been given to play um, regardless of their race or their gender yeah Um, and and you work with them and you make them shine so you can shine like you don't get to shine if they don't shine yeah so my very first time I ever auditioned um, I, which was trying out for The Wiz. Now, this is really ironic because it's a very, very, very white high school. Yeah. it was at the time. And they did The Wiz. And they did The Wiz because of the genius of Mr. Paul Mathis, who was our theater um, teacher and producer. Wow. And, you know, every Black person in that school tried out. But do you realize, with every Black person in the school trying out, still, Dorothy was white, the Tin Man was white, um, and but everybody was white. In fact, Dorothy had red hair.
0: Wait, wait. yeah, in the Wiz, Dorothy in the Wiz, in
1: the Wiz, in the Wiz, and I, I, the only black person in a senior role in the in the in the whole musical, got the Wicked Witch of the West.
0: No. Evelyn.
1: Yes, I did. And I I tried out for Dorothy and all the rest too. My mom was fuming yeah. because I had tried out after that year, I tried out for all the musicals and I always just got dancer, like, you know, principal dancer the first year and then like uh-huh. sideline dancer, like person who just comes in with a large, large crowd the, in the next two years. Uh-huh. And she knew what was happening is that I got a part in The Wiz because I'm really good. And, um, but also because The Wiz is black. So that was like. They couldn't have the Wiz be all white.
0: So right. we
1: got to have at least one black person up in here. So, you know, they they cast me as Eveline.
0: Lisa, you're a high school senior. You're a high school student. How are you managing all of this? How are you like emotionally, psychologically, personal identity wise? Like, how are you? Well,
1: I don't think I was, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know. You're right. just surviving, really. Mm. And so I think that the church for me, starting at um, at 14 years old, the church became the place where I hid out. Okay, Theater was one part. One place where I found acceptance, Mm -hmm. but it was conditional. It was conditional on being amazing, right? On being great and performing. The church was the place where I found friends, where I found people who would love me and Accept me for who I am. And, you know, and of course, I brushed up against um, people's racism every once in a while. Sure. White supremacy and all of that. It was the first time that Jesse Jackson went, ran for president, 1984. Yeah. And um, I wanted him to win so badly. I wept when I saw his his Democratic convention speech in 1984, um, you yeah. are somebody and keep hope alive and you know, and all of that. And I just could not understand how he did not win that year because he was obviously mm-hmm. the one who actually had the best message. And, and I said this to my youth group leader, um, God, literally God love her. She's amazing, amazing woman, mm. 30 years old. And she ran with the 14 and 15 year olds like, <laughs> without, without a heartbeat, right? Like, no, didn't miss a heartbeat but she said to me something i had never heard before because of my family was black and progressive and yeah. was part of the movement in the 60s she said i don't think america's ready for a black president huh. and i thought to myself what what you... i mean I, I it was the first time it was actually the first time that anybody in cape may had ever consciously talked about race to me, yeah. So it was in that context in the church that I really began to see the seeds of white supremacy. That I, the seeds of my own understanding got started to get planted there. Yeah. One of the things that that I, I was invited to do was as a as a member of the youth group to serve on the church board. Or we're in the meeting and they're talking about how to um, this this busing program that they want to have. They want to do busing where they can get. Kids from the villas, excuse me, which was like a, a underserved white area, okay, um, to their their church, which was kind of in the middle of Irma, which is this nice, quaint little drive-through town, right where we lived, um, and then they were going to go into Cape May as well, and Cape May has white focus; it's very, it's actually very white, right? So. I said, oh my gosh, that'd be so great because then we'd be able to pick up my my cousins because they're in West Cape May. And do you know that those church folk, those white haired white ladies and men said to me, yeah. oh, but they have their own churches. <gasps> well, not everybody goes to those churches. I mean, I, I, I was just literally, i was it was my first rub up against white supremacy in the church, yeah. you know? And so, so those were the hints that I got. And I think that the sounding gong Um, Came my senior year when my sister stepped off of the school bus one day and she was trailed by a car that um, screamed epithets at her, you know, Uh um, calling her the N-word and saying, go back to Africa and we don't want you here. And she like basically hightailed it home, which was just a block from where she was dropped off on the bus. Uh And um, then that same car showed up at our house, like outside of our house. That that night and for the next week, actually two weeks, for two weeks they came to our house at twelve fifteen in the morning every single night. Oh my gosh! And they screamed at our house, "Niggers, go back to Africa. We don't want you here." You know. Did
0: you know who it was? We,
1: I did not know who it was. None of us knew who it was. My dad put himself situated himself up on the roof with a BB gun. I don't know what he was going to do with a BB gun, but whatever. <sighs> then one day he 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 finally got a brilliant idea. He hid in the car because we, my mom figured out that they must be getting off work because they're coming every single night at the same time. And we realized, okay, if they're getting off work, it's probably this restaurant because it's the only thing open up to that time because it's Cape May. And and so sure, as I'm black, um, they came at 1215 that night, my dad hid Mm. in the car. Mm. And when they left, Mm. he followed them, he trailed them and got the license plate number. And it traced back to a good friend of mine in seventh grade. Uh. Yep. (laughs)
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Wow. So when did that end? Did the police intervene?
1: Well, this is Kate May, remember? So it's the South, right? So imagine this happening in the South. What would happen? Well, we didn't realize it was the South because it was 1980s after all. Mm -hmm. And it was... New Jersey after all. But but this is when we realized okay, this is where we are. They did report it. My dad, you know, they they figured out who it was. Um the boys were arrested but not held and um and they had to go to court and the only thing that they had they had no penalty really at all. Mm. All they had was community service and they had to come to the family and say I'm sorry. Wow. And when they came, my dad wasn't there cuz he was going to get my brother and he got back too late and I'll never forget my dad's he had literally, he jumped up and down with rage that he missed them being there to apologize because yeah. they really did terrorize. We were terrorized. Yeah. I had, I had actual dreams. About the Klan burning crosses on our lawn, wow. and that year the Klan had burned a cross in Cape May on the land on the lawn of one of my family's my father's friends. Oh my God! And over the years, our house was targeted by um, basically by bigoted boys yeah. multiple times. You know, when my brother lived there, he had a very similar thing happen to him. Uh
0: huh. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa, I have a question. Um, you know, you did you spent some time in theater as a teenager. Yeah. Was that a time where you began to start developing your voice?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Well, I did take vocal classes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, that's not as, what I mean.
1: <laughs> as a theater major, I know, I know, I know, I'm just kidding you. But I mean, I think yes. Um, but it wasn't just, I didn't develop my voice through theater. I think I, I think what theater did for me was it helped to unlock my voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and it literally was those vocal classes. Like there is something about like when you're an actor, you have to project to the back of the room so that the person in the back of the room can hear you. (laughs) And, and what they teach you is that if you, if you eat your words, if, if, you can, if they can't hear you, it's not because your body won't allow you to be heard. It's because your mind mm. thinks that you don't have anything worth listening to, yeah. right? So you don't feel worthy of being heard. Right. So there is something about, I think there was something about that theater training that actually helped me to understand that it is possible for me to live truthfully in this world and be heard. That's been my journey. So, and I think that theater kind of set me up for that. Yeah. But I actually think it was also during that time that I was um, a student in Campus Crusade for Christ in crew. Okay. Um, and, And it was in that time that two major things, like two major foundations were laying for the work that I do now. One was, it was in that time that I began to understand white evangelicalism At its core. Okay. Um, But I I didn't understand it to critique it. I was just being taught it by the people who developed it. Like Campus Crusade for Christ has been, um, in many ways, kind of the spearhead of white evangelicalism Hmm. um, or at the center of white evangelicalism since since. World War II. Um, and it's, I mean, really you trace that, you even trace that back to intervarsity, but crew really kind of took over really. Um, and, and it intersects with Billy Graham and mm-hmm. all of that, but basically the heart of, of 20th century white evangelicalism, I was right there. Yeah. I was right there. And I was, I was an uh, what you might call an A student in the middle of all that. Right. Like, right. I got it. I got it so good. I was writing little ditties about it, like the four spiritual laws and all that. And <laughs> I had planned on going on staff and it, interestingly, it was theater that, that called me off of staff. I just not off of, but out of that, out of that track, Yeah, I realized I want to do theater. And so I, I told them, sorry, you know, hold, put my application for crew staff on, on hold. I'm going to go to Broadway and see what I can do. And I ended up working off Broadway for a year and then caught the urban bug. I realized, you know, what I really want to do is I want to understand how to love the poor more effectively. And that was in 1989 to 1990. No, sorry, 1990 to 91. So let me just say, it was in, in, the, in the crew experience, I got the teaching about how to interpret scripture, which was very much based on systematic theology. Sure. Um, I got taught from Southern Baptist white men how to interpret the scripture. Mm-hmm. This scripture by the way that was written by brown colonized indigenous people right. while they were colonized. I have no idea why a white male southern baptist man thinks they have the authority to tell anybody how to in- interpret scripture since they are literally interpreting it from the very social location of the caesar who killed Jesus, wow. but we won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but the but the second half of the um, of what was so influential in that time was the fact that through into, through Campus Crusade, I actually got to go through to the, um, on an urban project. It was their second one they ever did, okay. called Here's Life Inner City, and it brought me into New York City in order to um, to learn to love the poor more effectively. Hmm. And it was there that I was in many ways reintroduced to myself because I had I had effectively whiteified myself when I went on that urban project. Things began to shift for me, but that was my that was the summer between my junior and senior year. I see so it was very late in my experience. Right. So, but when I went on that project, I went to New York city and all summer I'm immersed in this community that is by far majority white, but the people that we're going to and we're we're with are all black. Mm. And so through them by interacting with black people, finally, after not interacting with black people, except for my own family, Mm. most of college all the way through high school and in junior high, by re-engaging in those communities, this time now as a kind of missionary, but, but really just a, like a, a nascent one, I began to be reconciled with myself again. I came out of that summer realizing God loves black people. God loves me yeah. as a black woman, yeah. as a black person. So then when I got back to school, I joined another club, not just crew now. Now I was also a member of RU with the Homeless, Rutgers University with the Homeless. Okay. And I began to, um, I thought, well, the way I can contribute to what they're doing this year, which was opening up a homeless shelter in New Brunswick, was I can go down on Sunday nights and I can help lead worship because I was a worship leader. Yeah. So I got I got our Campus Crusade for Christ worship team every Sunday that year to go down and sing for the homeless people. Yeah. We would actually lead worship for them. And um and then I started to actually have black a few, just a handful, like of black friends on campus. Um and that was like A new thing for me, ironically, except for my own family. I I hadn't had that for so long. And so by the time I graduated, I think I was starting to realize how white my world was. Hmm. Um, And I was starting to realize how disconnected I was from my own community. So I moved to New York City. And... Did theater and then started realizing there's got to be more than this. So that's when I went to L.A. the next year, 1991, okay. In order to in order to study what it meant to love the poor more effectively, and really at that point then immersed in Latino community um, yeah. in Mid Wilshire, um, Los Angeles.
0: Why L.A. instead of New York?
1: <laughs> well, that, yeah, no, you're, I know. No, let me tell you, I have a funny story about that. So. So this is like, uh, December, 1990 okay. and in December, 1990, that is when Rodney King was beaten. So I was, I remember watching TV and seeing that for the first time, um, uh, in the news Yeah. and, um, and, but you know, there was a riot then it was just like, look at this. This is the very first time this has ever been filmed. First time we're seeing this happen. And of course it had been happening like literally for hundreds of years, Yeah. but this was just the first time everybody else got to see it. So Rodney King gets beaten and then Do the Right Thing comes out the next year in in 1991. And I, in the interim between those two things, I start literally like in my prayer time as I'm walking down the street, as as I'm talking with a friend, I might hear, I just like started hearing the word in my head, California. Like literally just like that, like
0: California. Wow! It
1: just like this small, still voice, like God. I yeah. just, like And I just like shoved it aside because I never thought of California. I never ever had a thought about California in my whole life before that. And um, and then this guy comes to town. His name is Michael Mata. Okay. And he turns out to be the director of this institute called the Brazil Institute for Urban Training, and it is out of the First Church of the Nazarene in. Um, In Los Angeles, but it also was connected with Fuller Seminary and Northwest Nazarene Seminary and any other seminary that wanted to Mm -hmm. give give you credit for the work they were doing. But they created a satellite campus basically for for seminary students to do urban training. And he came and he was recruiting for this school. So I just, I happened upon this conversation. He was having a a recruitment conversation with one of my apartment mates. And so I sat down and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get up pretty soon. But I ended up being the one still there three hours later Mm. um, talking with him. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is, um, like, we were just talking about urban theology and liberation theologies and theology and like all of these, like, Justice and all these things. And I just I mean, things I really I had not ever heard of or thought about. And then he said, you should come to L.A. You should come and be a part of the Brazil Institute. You should come. And I said, I literally said to him, my little 21 year old self, (laughs) very arrogant, um, very full of myself well, you can't have done anything. You can't be doing anything in LA that we didn't try in New York 20 years ago. Wow. I I actually said that. Oh my God. My (laughs) heart, my heart hurts just thinking about that now. But, but it really, I did. I, that was me. I said that. And he still laughs to this day that I said that he has become my longest time mentor. He has been my mentor since that day. Wow. He has been my mentor since that day. So he said, I assure you, we are mm. and and so I said okay go ahead and give me a brochure and I had no intention of filling it out but within months literally within a month or two all of my options shut down so sometimes God has to close doors in order to direct our, our path so the play that I had been worked the musical that I had been working on as an assistant stage manager closed okay with that my internship closed which meant my housing closed I didn't have housing mm. I didn't have a job I didn't have an internship I didn't have pay. so I was like okay I am open. (laughs) I am open for anything God wants to send my way. So I said, let me go ahead and apply for this Brazil Institute. And I did. And it was the only door open at the end of a few months um, when I had to make my decision.
0: Did you ever tie it back to that voice that you kept hearing saying move to California?
1: Yes, 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 exactly. Yes. Because he was in LA and I had never been to LA before. Yeah. And um, and then when he said you need to come and I mean really I realized yeah I'm going to California yeah I'm going to California so so but it, uh, there's another story with, with this as well I I didn't really know why I just knew okay I'm going through this open door but about a month before I left Boys in the Hood mm. opened. Hit theaters and in that summer, summer of 1991. Okay. And I went to the theater to see it. And I was the very last person to leave that theater, the very last person because I cried. Mm. I was crying so hard. I mean, so hard that my eyes were just little golf balls with slits in them. They were so puffed up. I mean, truly, because I'd cried so hard and they kicked me out. And so I had to walk home crying. And then I walked home about a block crying. I went up to my room crying. I sat in my room and cried for another 20 minutes. Wow. And and the only prayer that came out in that time was, God, what are you going to do about this? Yeah. What I didn't even know gangs were a thing mm. anymore. I mean, I thought gangs were out with West Side Story, you know, <laughs> before seeing that movie. Truly, right? Yeah. But then that movie opened me up to the reality that no, there's there is something happening beyond this. And sitting there on my bed. I heard that still small voice again. And I said, God, what are you going to do about this? And and then I got an idea. I was like, wait a minute, you're going. Said, Wouldn't it be amazing if you could direct a play? Like if you could actually work with the kids from that neighborhood? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh my gosh. So I started getting this vision. So within two months of me being there, I I arrived in August of of 1991. Mm -hmm. I was asked by the director of the youth center to direct their Christmas play that the kids would perform for the church, right? And in the middle of one of those rehearsals, one of the kids started bragging about the fact that boys in the hood was filmed on their block. Wow. I kid you not. And it turned out that almost all the kids we were working with were from that block. (laughs) They were like literally, literally lived on the block where they filmed that film. Wow. And it ended up being this like entry point um, into, into LA. I had only intended to be there for nine months for that program, Uh but the LA uprising happened in 1992, just a few months, you know, into me being there and that changed everything.
0: So tell me about that. Tell me what it changed and how, what changed in your whole approach?
1: Well, the LA uprising began, uh, I don't remember the day of the week. I think it might have been a Wednesday or Tuesday, but I remember the first day we heard, we, we knew that there was fires all over the place because of the announcement that Rodney King's um assailants, the cops that had beat him nearly to death, um, were set, they were let off. They were they were found not right. guilty. Yeah. But this was just unthinkable because we had the tape, right? Right. But the thing is they had moved that trial to Simi Valley. Simi Valley is full of people who had moved from LA to to Simi Valley to avoid black people, right? To yeah. to not be around black people. So now they're gonna move the trial to an area full of people who are white supremacists in the way that they see the world. And so, of course, they're going to get the cops are going to be let off. So basically, I mean, all hell broke loose in, in Los Angeles that day. Yeah. And but the thing is, it was all contained below the 10 freeway, which is a major vein in New York. In I'm sorry, in L.A., yeah. what they called South Central at the time, now called South L.A., is below the ten. And I was situated just above the tent, just above Koreatown. Okay. So we wondered if the next day that the fires and the rioting would actually come above the tent. Right. And that was the big question. So as I walked to work that day, it was really quiet. And, you know, you just didn't know where were the fires going to start today, if they were going to be at, it at all, anywhere. And then I heard and saw my boss came bounding down the hall um, say, saying, it started, it started. Um, and so there was a fire right across the street from us oh, wow. on, at the corner of 3rd and Vermont. And so several of us went out there. We, we brought fruit for the firemen who had been up all night t- putting out the fire yeah. and and there became to be this big crowd. And it was actually a huge community spirit. Like we were all for the firemen who were putting out that fire. And then out of the blue, this gang walked up the street, probably 18th street gang, cause that was their neighborhood. Okay. Um, and they, they weren't saying anything. They were just making random noises and we were standing on the corner of a gas station and they began to bang on the gas tanks, okay. the gas tanks as they passed by. So one person got scared and ran. Two people got scared and ran. They ran after those people. Next thing you know, somebody in the crowd yells, Vons, which is the supermarket right next to our church. And the entire crowd took off and stormed all at once, stormed Vons. And looting began on our corner the next day. And so that was the second day. The iconic uh, image of the Korean gas station owner who is on the roof of his gas station shooting at people who are are threatening to loot. That was around the corner from where we were. Literally, we were like, oh my God, we know because we know that person. We know that, that gas station that was around the corner. And so the next day or that night, actually, we spent with Michael Mata and his wife and family and we watched ash fall from the sky like rain wow. and we saw flames just in every direction of our city and and we prayed but the next day we walked to the church and that was the day that i was introduced to the passage of um, Jeremiah 29, 11. It, actually, it's not 11, it was actually four through seven, maybe even a little bit further than that. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, mm-hmm. take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where yeah. i have sent you into exile and pray for the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare mm. so that was the that was the day that i was introduced to that verse and and what they say is that our role is to seek the peace the shalom of the city that doesn't mean the putting out of the fires it doesn't mean that people no longer are angry. It doesn't mean... What it means is that justice rolls down mm, like rivers yeah. in our cities. It means that our cities become economically equitable. Um, it means that those who have been pushed to the margins are now recognized in the center and asked to speak and listen to and followed. Yeah. It means... A lot more than just the absence of fires, right? So we went about the business of beginning to organize the mothers of the young people who were part of our Young Life um, chapter that we had there in our youth center, and those mothers, who most of whom were on welfare in South Central, where all of their supermarkets have been burned down, those mothers became, um, they organized food distribution for South Central (laughs) for their community. And they became the hubs of food distribution in their communities. And they began to recognize the fullness of the image of God in them and the reality that they too were called to exercise dominion on earth. So a lot like this time was really formational for me in understanding how God sees us and how much our systems and structures in the world today were actually crafted according to the lie of human hierarchy, Mm. not according to the truth of the reality of the image of God in all people. Yeah.
0: What comes after L.A.?
1: Well, the funny thing is, it's not really, I mean, L.A. was a long time, right? So, yeah. you know, that was the beginning of my time in L.A. And from okay. there, I ended up going back to grad school, got my master's in, in playwriting. And it was in that same time that God was calling me to lay aside theater mm-hmm. in order to to go deeper into the ministry part of who I was and in order to be formed in order to be um, in order to deal with character and brokenness and, and leadership to, to get those basic lessons of leadership. Now I don't know if I really had to do that now. I go I look back on that now and I go I don't really have to do that. but if I had to do it again I would because what I got out of that experience was golden. It was it was the foundations of my work right now. I mean it was my understanding of race, it was my understanding of racial reconciliation. Hmm. now I would call it racial healing now. Um, it was my understanding of leadership. Most of my core leadership lessons were learned in those years with InterVarsity. I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 10 years yeah. at UCLA and, and then for the whole division in greater LA. And then finally, my last year, it was a specialist for all of Southern California in racial reconciliation. Wow. And it was a pilgrimage that I took in 2003 and 2004. Um, in the American South, and then in the Balkans through Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia, okay. that kind of propelled me off of staff. Um, when I began to realize my heart is no longer on the campus, my heart is for the world. Mm. And I, I have, I now I know too much about our history and our current day policies to think that I can do this work of racial reconciliation without understanding law and systems. So I went back and I got my master, my second master's degree in human rights at um, Columbia University. Okay. And um, so I left staff, left Los Angeles, moved back home to New York City. that was that was that second time or third time yeah. I've lived there in my life. And I lived there for six years total, graduated from um, Columbia University in 2006. And, and then I started New York Faith and Justice. After leaving there, okay, and that was a if you think of Sojourners, which is a national um, justice-oriented community that then kind of became this um, advocacy arm uh-huh. of the church in in Washington D.C. We started New York Faith and Justice kind of as a mini Sojourners in some ways in New York City, yeah, with the goal of uniting the church around the the question of poverty. In New York City, and ending poverty in New York City, and learning to follow Jesus into justice doing. So it was there that I met Jim Wallace. It was in that context that I met Jim Wallace. and, And he and Sojourners became really great partners with New York Faith and Justice. And we were two years into our work, and the work was bumping; it was thriving, and we were having, we were making big impact, actually, uh-huh. through the work we were doing in in both community uh, police conversations in the South Bronx yeah. that kind of grew up out of the Sean Bell conflict, um, his massacre, murder, um, okay, and then out of kind of we, we followed a trail from there to environmental justice work that brought together the church and an interfaith group that began to work on um, environmental justice throughout New York City, food justice, and making sure that toxins aren't being dumped into our environment. And so we organized yeah. the church to do that. And then finally, immigration reform. And But at in the middle of all of that, the economic downturn happened. And so the money dried up. Mm. And I just had no pay. And I mean, I literally, you would laugh. And also wonder how did I get through that last year? Um, I mean, I got through that last year by the grace of God and my parents. And they just, they were very, very gracious. And they sent money um, for me to be able to live in New York and, and to continue to do the work. Right. Um, They really funded my ministry the last year and my speaking gigs. But what, what ended up happening was I, I just, you know, I called Jim Wallace and I just said, Hey, Jim, you know, you've kind of joked about having me come down to, to DC to join Sojourners. Or not joked, but you've said you want this over the years. Now is the time Uh because I'm about to go get a real job. (laughs) And if you're going to take me, it got to be now. So he was like, Can you come down next week for an interview? Yeah. And so I did, got a job that they crafted for me, Uh the director of mobilizing
0: there. Yeah. So after your time at Sojourners, you started this organization, Freedom Road. Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: So, Freedom Road, um, I I was starting to realize that my time with Sojourners was coming to a close. But I didn't know what was what was next. You know how you just get that feeling like you start to get antsy. Uh Like there's just there's you know that this is not where you're supposed to be long term, but you're not sure where you're supposed to be. Sure. So I, you know, in an act of faith, I just told them I'm going to be leaving at this time. And I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what the next step was. And then that same day that I actually gave my um gave my notice and told them what my last day would be, they I had a phone call that was already scheduled and my uh, and a brand new friend who had literally just messaged me. Facebook messaged me out of the blue to say, "Hey, Lisa." we had been in a few meetings before together and she said, you know, I'd love to to sit down and talk with you sometime, learn more of your story, ironically. Right. Uh So, so she, so we had a call scheduled for that day and literally I came out of the, out of my supervisor's office telling him when my last day would be. And then I got on a call with her and her first question was, so what's going on in your life? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, I'm going to be leaving. Sojourners. No way. Oh my God. You know, what do you want to do? So that question was the first It actually, it gave rise to the first aha moment Mm. where I realized what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, I thought about it. I didn't just spout off. I I mean, I really thought about it. And I said, you know, what I really want to do is I want to take as many people through pilgrimage experiences as possible because pilgrimage was so pivotal to my own journey, to my own um, reimagining of my faith, my own understanding of what happened on this land and how my faith, what my faith has to do with it or say about it. Yeah. Um, so I want to take as many people through pilgrimage as possible. Now that was the seed of the idea. And pilgrimage is a large part of what we do, but it's not all of what we do. Okay. What we've become is a consulting group that basically is an, edu- we are educators. We educate and we consult and we, um, we train, we create forums and experiences pilgrimage being one of them, but also Uh summits being other ones and other kinds of experiences. Um, Our podcast is another, um, our institute and our webinars are other experiences where people can come to common understanding and, and also common can make common commitments Uh um, about how we will live together in the world and that will move us to common action yeah so that is what freedom road exists to do and so we do that in multiple different ways and we have a team of about 20 different consultants that have all these different specialties that we job in and out of our consulting contracts but also you'll find them and all of us um, in the institute teaching webinars and, and, um, leading growth communities and coaching cohorts and things like that. And and I just, just recently put out, um, a racial race and equity bootcamp that for me is like a, it's a culmination of years of work, just putting it in these four Mm. segments that kind of gives it all gives, gives the best of what I got, you know, in four segments that can be downloaded. So, so the, the, the purpose of freedom road is to help the world to shrink the gap that exists between our narratives Hmm. because it is that gap in our narratives that keeps us in this place where we have a war for the soul of America.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, as you think about bridging the gap between communities and people, races that aren't able to share the common ground, do you stop and think about your upbringing and seeing how, as a black woman, you needed to navigate not just white space, but white evangelical space? And do, do you see, do you attribute some of that ability to bring people together? Because that's really what you had to do every single day growing up.
1: Yes, literally. Yes, yeah, I do. Um, I you know I took a course back when I was um, in Los Angeles while I was with Intervarsity um, in mm. two thousand, and it actually helped set me on the trajectory that I'm on right now. This course was called Lifelong Development, and it was um, taught by Bobby Clinton. <laughs> so you know that you know that you know him. You know what I'm talking about making of a leader.
0: I, I did actually uh, read his book, uh, Making of a Leader. Oh, cool. I was laughing because I feel like I've been in that, in that course without knowing it. Lifelong development. Oh. <laughs>
1: right right well aren't we all right to some degree well this was an amazing course and i mean the very first assignment of that course was to write your epitaph wow that was literally the first assignment was to write your epitaph um in fact it's it's my first exercise that i give to the people that i coach oh wow because it was so powerful in my life what was yours (laughs) Um, my epitaph i got it literally on the way home from that course we were in the car and I thought to myself, this is what, how I want to be remembered. Mm. She led us through the wilderness. Now we live in the promised land.
2: Wow. And
1: that's not to say I'm some Moses, but it is to say that I exist to help people to navigate through conflict and to navigate through those troubled waters, yeah. the troubled waters, right? And in order to find what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, mm. the Shalom place, the place of Shalom. And that's not to say that um we'll ever have Shalom one hundred percent on earth, right? Mm-hmm. But that is what Jesus told us to pray for, right Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. right So that was my that was my epitaph. That's what I want to be my epitaph to this day. And I think that that's been the trajectory of my life. But one of the second exercises that he gave us was something called Sovereign Foundations. okay and in that in that exercise, Um, Dr. Clinton said that in his study of leaders, and he studied thousands of leaders, what he's found is that in the lives of every leader, there are phases that leaders go through and particular things that God does in these particular phases that every leader goes through.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: And along with that, there are sovereign foundations in that first phase, basically like childhood, mm. those childhood years, I mean, all the way up through high school, maybe even into, into college. But there are foundations that God lays in your life that actually can serve as signposts yeah. that, that can show you what God's intent for you is in this world. Mm. What God was dreaming when God created you. But yeah. God was dreaming for you. And, and so the second assignment was to go back and actually discern what were those signposts. And he says, think about what was going on the year that you were born. Think about um, your name. Think about um, your family heritage. Think about incidents that you experienced in this world that you expect. Yeah. How has God written on the blackboard of your life about who you are? And so I did. I did that thinking. And I realized I realized that there were um major strains um that kept weaving through my story the strain of yeah. the arts um the strain of race the strain of leadership, yeah. um, the strain of, of racial justice in particular. Mm. I mean, everything from who my ancestors were and are, my my family. Yeah. So there are all these little signs, right? There are all yeah. these little signs, and so I think that when I look back on my time in Cape May, there was a time when I cursed it. Um, there was a point, actually, in the nineteen, like I think it was around nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. When I was at a black staff retreat with with Intervarsity when I was on staff with them and there was like a prayer a prayer time broke out you know so as it often uh-huh. did with our black staff yeah. and um you know it was like done. somebody got on the organ you know the the keyboard and then 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 you know and it was like holy lord hallelujah hallelujah and and me my little my little you know white-souled self because i had been raised <laughs> in the white church i didn't know all this jumping and hollering stuff yeah. and yeah, i mean really quite honestly none of my family had had much interaction with the historic black church cuz my my family was in the Black Episcopal Church. We were high church people, right? Right. right. And I didn't even go to church growing up, so I didn't even uh-huh. know that, right? So, so when this when this prayer time breaks out, I'm I'm literally like beside myself. So I start to pray. I'm like, Oh Lord, please help them, you know. <laughs> and Lord, you know, just just be with them in the midst of this time of prayer. Yeah. Um. And you know, I'm like stretching my hands out to the people around the room who are running around and falling out. Yeah. Um. And then. Dr. ABC, Dr. Alice Brown-Collins comes bounding over to me. And I'm like, what? And so and she she lays her hands, slaps her hands on my head, you know? And she's like, I rebuke the spirit of rejection. Nice. And I was like, what in the world? What? I don't have a spirit of rejection. What's a spirit of rejection? Yeah. I don't have a spirit of rejection. What are you talking about? I mean, I'm really like, what? So then I start praying, God, save me from these people, right? So- uh-huh. And then everybody starts coming around me, and they all start laying their hands on me.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness.
1: I swear to you, I was like, beside myself, oh my goodness. So I'm really like, I'm like, oh, no. So, but then out that's still a small voice. It came back again, yeah the same voice that said, "California." Now it said, "Agree with me that I've made you well." Mm. It said "Agree in fact, it said it like this. I heard it like, "Agree with me that I've made you well." Wow, right. And my answer to my great surprise was no, I couldn't agree. Wow. And then I was like, okay, I guess I might have a spirit of direct rejection. (laughs) Yeah. I could not agree. I wrestled while all my friends, you know, were laying their hands on me with Dr. ABC and praying in tongues and all that, that I didn't do. Yeah. And um, agree with me that I made you well. And my answer to God was why couldn't you have just put me in an all-Black town for my whole life and had me go to a Baptist church yeah. and had me grow up with an all-Black friends for my whole life? Because I had Black friends in Philly, but then we moved to Cape May. Yeah. And you know, and I, I was surrounded in Black community, but then we moved to Cape May. And then I was in Campus Crusade, not the Black Baptist Union. You know, like yeah. why did I have all these, why did I have to live in the middle of of a Latino area in LA. Why couldn't I have moved down to South Central and been in a black area, God? Yeah. Why couldn't I have had a pure black experience? I want to be more black. Now, then God reminded me that back when I was in high school, my my complaint to God was, why can't I be white? Because it was in that context in Cape May that I could never be seen as white enough, not white enough to have the starring roles and the whiz, (laughs) (laughs) right? Not white enough to have a boyfriend. Hello. In an all white Mm. area, not white enough, not white enough. So I wanted to be white back then. And now I want to be more black. And God said, Agree
2: with me that I've made you
1: well. Wow. It was almost like a light bulb went off above my head, and I had this epiphany. And it was, it, it was, and God kind of encapsulated it with this language There is method to my madness. Mm. There is method to the madness that is all the places and people that you have lived among. Yeah. And that's when God told me, Lisa, you are a bridge person. Yeah. You literally, like, quite literally have lived and moved among most of the people groups in the United States. Like most of the major yeah. racial groups per se, you have lived among black people. That's your family and your friends when you were up to 10 years old, yeah. you have lived in the heart of the white people. <laughs> like yeah. you have Not only in Cape May, but also in, in Campus Crusade for Christ and InterVarsity. Mm-hmm. You have lived in Asian community, I mean, I have been in all those places, and then when we moved to Mid Wilshire, and when the when the civil uprising happened, I was in a Latino community, yeah, and worked with Latinos, mentored Latino students, Latinx students, um, and so it was. It was in that moment that God said, "There's method to my madness. I have created you to be." a bridge Mm. person. Like that is who you are and it is for a purpose. And so I've known since then that I was made
0: well. Agree with me that I've made you well. Throughout Lisa's life, her response to that statement changed depending on where she was, who she was with, what she was doing but she found the answer when she discovered why she was made the way she was. It's a powerful reminder to me and hopefully to you that your life is a journey and that the sovereign foundations that have been laid may not yet have been revealed to you, but stay faithful and one day you will be able to agree with God that he made you well. You can find Lisa on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa S. Harper and I'll put links to her organization and her books in the show notes. If you'd like to hear more from Lisa Sharon Harper, I will put some links to some podcast episodes that I've enjoyed that she's been on that I think are worth listening to. I hope you're enjoying The Pursuit. Help me get the word out about the show. Tell your friends, tell your mother, tell your friend's mother, tell your mother's friends, tell them all to subscribe and to leave a review. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path.
1: Jeremiah 29. We
0: can cut this out and make it seem like you memorized
1: Oh no! <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> just, don't, don't do I'm that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's hilarious.